In 2002, Vanity Fair writer-at-large Marie Brenner set off along the avenues and boulevards of Paris's Banlieue, the gritty working-class suburbs that ring the city, to track an alarming trend, the steep increase in anti-Semitic violence bubbling up from the French-Muslim community. The dispatch she filed, France's scarlet letter, cited hundreds of attacks against Jews, children assaulted, synagogues destroyed, school buses stoned, demonstrators howling, kill the Jews. Her guide through this terrain was a retired Parisian police officer named Sami Gozlan, whose every spare hour was devoted to combating anti-Semitism in his beloved city. Earlier this year, Brenner returned to Paris to catch up with Gozlan. In Paris is Burning, she describes a situation ever more dire in the wake of last summer's anti-Semitic riots in central Paris and January's Charlie Hebdo and Hyper Cacher supermarket attacks. I led the fight for fifteen years, Goslan told Brenner, and all our warnings made no difference. Brenner's alarming report, which includes the harrowing, never-before-told account of one of the Jewish hostages held at gunpoint inside the Hyper Cacher, makes ignoring or excusing the situation in Paris no longer an option. They are not screaming death to the Israelis on the streets of Paris, a Frenchman tells Brenner. They are screaming death to the Jews. In 2014, amid the increasing violence and hostility, some 7,000 French Jews fled to Israel. As many as 15,000 more may leave by the end of the year. The émigrés include one man whose departure, Brenner writes, should have been unthinkable, Goslan himself. The attack on the satirical weekly Charlie Hebdo this past January, in which 12 people died at the hands of Islamist gunmen, prompted a wave of worldwide revulsion and eloquent testimonials to the sacred and threatened role of free speech in a democracy. The paper was soon up and running again, and its first issue after the killings flew off newsstands around the globe. Given the well-documented recent struggles of print journalism, it's jarring to come across a publication whose problem today is that it has too much money. But that's precisely the position Charlie Hebdo now finds itself in, the weekly is reportedly sitting on more than $33 million, an unexpected windfall amassed in sales, subscriptions, and donations since the deadly attack. But this newfound wealth has made things worse, not better. Indeed, it has become a divisive toxin, further traumatizing a publication that had been on the brink of economic ruin ever since its founding 45 years ago. Money is a poisoned gift, Patrick Pelou a writer for Charlie Hebdo, tells Roger Cohen, whose report on the paper is titled The Charlie War. Pelou, whose absence from the weekly's conference room on January 7th literally saved his life, is among the staff struggling to chart Charlie's path forward, both as an irreverent media tribune, ardently brandishing the banner of free and foul speech, and as the uneasy custodian of sudden wealth. In France, money is often viewed with something like embarrassment, as a subject to be whispered about rather than flaunted. Cohen writes, If money lies at the heart of discourse in the United States, and sex is taboo, in France it is the opposite. But the nouveau riche Charlie and its internecine disputes over ownership are the talk of French thinkers and the chattering classes. Cohen, a longtime foreign correspondent for the New York Times and a sage chronicler of France's culture wars, reports on the price of journalism in the aftermath of tragedy. Charlie's future is critically important for the memory of the dead and for the future of France, 
Cohen writes. At a time of sharp tensions between a large Muslim population, often discriminated against, and a fearful Jewish population, frank exchanges of ideas are needed, and that can be based only on a journalism that is unfearful, uncowed, and financially strong. Is there a dog breed more associated with a living person than the corgi is with the queen? You could reasonably say that they are as much a part of her look as her purse, barber, and headscarf. More important, they are a part of her life. Young Elizabeth was given her first corgi in 1933 at the age of seven, just a few years before the train of fate, Edward VIII, Mrs. Simpson, the abdication, would shift the line of succession and eventually put her on the throne at the age of twenty-five.